listening to the Jackie Daly Show, and I am here at the Dallas Petroleum Club, the brand new Dallas Petroleum Club on Ackerd Street, not the old one, don't go there, don't make the mistake my ways mate. I'm here to interview Gregory Wrightstone, he's been on the show many times, uh, and he, as you might know, is maybe the first man to have a uh, number one best-selling book over and over and over and over, the same book hitting the top spot uh, over a period of seven years now. And remind me, Gregory, what was the title? Inconvenient Facts, the science that Al Gore doesn't want you to know. Yes, and so I had Gregory on the show long ago, years ago, to talk about that book, as did Glenn Beck and other hosts uh, inside the Blaze Suite there in Las Colinas. And uh, unbelievably, really, you should write a new book, How to Make Your Book a Number One Bestseller over and over and over over a period of years i mean like the bible or something <laughs> yeah this just doesn't happen with books no uh, it's i think that's a testament because it's so readable and i i wrote it for the everyday joe and jane on the street you don't have to be a scientist to understand it i didn't dumb anything down there is there is science there but i wanted to present it in, a, in an understandable manner and that was my challenge for that book and now for my new book Right, and so just to recap, what exactly do we learn from inconvenient facts? It's the, the facts that Al Gore doesn't want you to know, that's your clue. But why is this a number one bestseller? Well, it's, it's, it's telling the, the story that people haven't heard. They've heard that we, we have too much CO2 uh, that's leading to catastrophe. When the facts are, we're actually our CO2 impoverished. Carbon dioxide is at near historically low levels. And that's things like that we learn. Or they can find in that book. Uh, we're being told that fires are increasing by significant amounts when, no, we're, we're 20% of what fires were in the United States uh, going back not 80 and 90 years. Uh, and the worldwide, worldwide fires are in decline. We're seeing that deserts are shrinking, forests are expanding. That's the things we learned in, this, in that first book. Okay. And so um, now you have a brand new book that I hope becomes a number one bestseller. It's called a very excuse me a very convenient convenient warming how modest warming and more CO two are benefiting humanity and I see that you have a foreword by Dr William Happer which is very very impressive explain who Dr Happer is he's emeritus uh, professor of physics at Princeton uh, might be the most intelligent I've met a lot of really smart people he may be the most intelligent and noble. Um, person I've ever met. He's, uh, he's quite gracious, uh, but he knows, uh, again, his physics is solid. He's the chairman of the CO2 Coalition. I'm, I work closely with him. Uh, I'm the executive director there at the CO2 Coalition. Okay. And before we get started this morning, you were telling me that you've actually been on a world tour speaking to leaders from various countries, the UK, Australia, etc. Um, about CO2 and net zero. So to the extent that you're permitted to, uh, can you tell us about those meetings? Yeah, we had, uh, we had a private dinner in London with uh, uh, some of the MPs from, from the United Kingdom. and Actually, Nigel Farage was in attendance. So it was, it was a, a pretty interesting meeting. And then a, a meeting later that week with uh, uh, people representing United Kingdom, New Zealand, Australia, discussing uh, fighting back against net zero. Uh, it, this is a terrible, terrible, economically destructive agenda that they're trying to foist, not just on the United States, but on the world. Okay, so hopefully they have bought 
uh, copies of your book or you've given them copies. Uh, and then the new one just now coming out. So this is brand spanking new. Again, it's called a very convenient warming. How modest warming and more CO2 are benefiting humanity. Uh, these books are available on Amazon. Um, or are they? they? They will not be available on Amazon until uh, next year. You can buy them now at my website. If you search for convenient warming, the website will show up. Convenient warming is convenientwarming.com. Okay. And so they'll ship here in a few weeks. Okay. But now the old book is available. Oh, yeah. So, okay, on Amazon. Okay. Good, so you dedicate it to your grandchildren who will inherit this earth that we're going to leave behind for them. Uh, so certainly I'm sure that you care about what kind of earth we leave, um, like the rest of us, because you are, you're just a little bit older than me, so you and I only have another half century left to go uh, before we check out ourselves. Um, but for the future, here, just to give you an overview, are is, uh, the names of the chapters. Basic climate facts. Greenhouse gases and their effect. Carbon dioxide, the miracle molecule. Earth's carbon dioxide history. Turning up the heat on temperature data. Diving deep into the past. Humanity and climate, blessed, warmth, horrific cold. Uh, so these are the kinds of things that you're going to get from this book. Um, explain why you felt it necessary to write this book after the last book. Well, I, it's it's been an evolution on my part. What I've found, really this book is about what I call the, the greatest untold story of this century. And that is the huge benefits that are accruing to humanity from the combination of warming and more CO2. We're seeing, if you look at it by almost every metric you look at, uh, the modest warming and more carbon dioxide are leading to huge benefits to our ecosystems. Ecosystems are thriving and prospering. Uh, crops are breaking records year after year because of warming and more CO2, and humanity is benefiting. And so this, this is, this is a, uh, it's not a feel-good story, but it should make you feel good in that there's not a climate crisis. And I go beyond stating that there's not a climate crisis in this book. I'm saying, you're darn right there's no climate crisis, Things are good and getting better, and that's really something we need to celebrate. And particularly, it's crop growth, it's agriculture, that we're seeing the huge benefits. I, in the book here, I look at the top eight crops in terms of tonnage of production. And you should see the chart that I have. These crops are breaking records year after year after year, and that's related directly to, let's just look at warming. Because of warming, we have longer growing seasons, killing frost, stop earlier in the spring, arrive later in the fall. Uh, the CO2 that's increasing is turbocharging plant growth by CO2 fertilization effect. And then on top of that, we have nitrogen fertilizer that uh, might be responsible for 30 or 40 percent of crop growth over the last 80 years. And that nitrogen fertilizer is created from fossil fuels. We need fossil fuels to do this. So all these things combined, uh, we're feeding the, the, the growing population. Also in the book, I capture that crop growth and agricultural production is outpacing population growth. That's, that's a really, really good story that goes on told. Right. So, I mean, this is the opposite of the population bomb that we were told about. The people still talk about it as if it's valid, um, that somehow we're going to run out of food and have too many people. Um, but in fact, people need to understand this. When you say we use fossil fuels, um, 
try to imagine, right, before we used, um, you know, hydrocarbons to multiply the number of crops that we could grow, you just did your very best with what? Animal fertilizer. And that's what we had. So, I mean, do you know off the top of your head, first of all, approximately when did humankind start using uh, fossil fuel-derived fertilizer? Well, it was developed in the early 1900s as the Haber-Bosch process, uh, but it really didn't uh, come into use until after World War II because actually most of this, the nitrogen and the fertilizer that would have been created were used in the wartime effort to make bombs. And so it was uh, almost all it was being sucked up in the war, war effort. Uh, after World War II, they were able to use that nitrogen fertilizer. Uh, so it was really, it started really in the 1950s, uh, huge, and we see just a huge increase of fossil fuel derived uh, nitrogen based fertilizer. We see what happens. Uh, we had a case study just two years ago in Sri Lanka where, where they decided they were going to move away and not use nitrogen fertilizer and their entire agricultural-based economy collapsed. Uh, they, the president, Roger Poxy, barely escaped with his life. Uh, they were going to hang him, and he barely got out of the, of the country in time uh, because of his policies. He, he wanted to go, go all natural. Well, it doesn't work for you. You can do it in your backyard, but not on an industrial scale. Yeah, I think of growing uh, purely organic natural products as a luxury. It is a luxury item. Not only is it expensive, you get so much less for what you're... And don't get me wrong, I love natural stuff. I prefer uh, organic natural stuff, don't get me wrong. But that's really tough to feed 8 billion people on the planet uh, if we approach it that way. I'm going to take a break really quickly. And when I come back, I'll continue this conversation with Gregory Wrightstone. He is the author of A Very Convenient Warming, How Modest Warming and More CO2 Are Benefiting Humanity. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show, and I'm continuing a conversation with Gregory Wrightstone. He is the author of A Very Convenient Warming, How Modest Warming and More CO2 Are Benefiting Humanity. He is also the executive director of the CO2 Coalition, uh, which if you have never checked it out, you really should. Uh, A growing coalition, growing like crazy, at co2coalition.org, probably the leading organization for rebutting uh, the prevailing climate change narrative with real science. This is about following the science. Um, so back to the book, which is coming out right away. Um, you know, I, I like that you have a history there because people, people hear what you're saying. And I can only imagine the reaction of someone who has never taken a skeptical eye toward prevailing climate science. They wonder, how can it be true, Mr. Rystone, that I have seen... Yeah, uh, 200 headlines telling me that CO2 is an existential threat to humanity, but somehow you're telling me that you have the facts that somehow you know, rebut all of the top experts being cited by mainstream media. You are David fighting Goliath. What is your response to that? Well, I use their own data. I turn that right on their head. And I, I use my data derived from NASA, NOAA. Uh, National Centers for Environmental uh, Institute. Uh, these are these are. Uh, I'm. I was accepted as a uh, an expert witness for the. I was accepted as a as an expert reviewer for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. 
So I've been accepted. How did you pull that off, Greg? Why, how did they let you in the room, in the no, building? I, they won't do it again, I can tell you that. <laughs> but uh, but this is, a, this is, in fact, I'll be speaking in just a few moments here in Texas. And, and I've actually, part of the, my presentation, I've used the NASA data for Texas-specific data to show that that the high temperatures, uh, a percentage of days in excess of 100 degrees, they're not increasing. There's been a slight decrease. I look at the maximum temperature again. They're not increasing in Texas. And we see that uh, all over the country. We've done studies uh, looking at state-specific data in Pennsylvania, Virginia, Montana. Uh, we're working on Wyoming. Uh, Texas, we're, we're working on this is derived from that. Uh, so we're we're doing this all over the country, and we're seeing the same results that most of the states in the in the United States and around the world had high temperatures uh, back in the 1920s and 30s, that far in excess of anything we see today. Well, I hear a lot of people here in Texas who are bona fide conservatives who don't just swallow uh, narratives in the media say, "Wow, this has been the hottest year of my life. This is scary." And the younger they are, the more likely they are to say that. But, you know, I have to say to them, okay, but you weren't alive in the 1920s and 30s. You weren't alive 200 years ago. You weren't alive 500 years ago. How can we possibly know that these are the hottest days of all time? And I just covered this on my show. Holman Jenkins wrote a great piece for the Wall Street Journal about revisions in the data. And so when you're looking, for example, when you say to me, I have the data from the NOAA, which means the NOAA, that is your agency that's responsible for being kind of the repository of U.S. climate data. Um, you have to not only take their data, but you have to adjust for their adjustments. So how do you do that where they're going back mid-study you know, mid and saying, ooh, that didn't hit what we were expecting. Let's fine-tune our model. Yeah, they, there, there are adjustments made. And again, I looked at the Texas data, uh, which you will see in a few minutes. Uh, and I looked at the adjustments were made, and you see before 1980, 1980, the data was cooled. Uh, and post-1980, the data adjustment was to warm the temperature. So what that does is actually accentuate the warming that we've seen over the last 100-plus years. It, it, yes, it is still warming. Uh, we, even without the raw data shows, yeah, it is. Uh, there's nothing alarming about that, though. But what they've done is amplify the warming that we do see. And the other thing that we see that's, that's hard to adjust is the urban heat island effect. And that means that the urban centers, the cities, are artificially warmed because of all just all the buildings around. And if you go to the EPA and search for EPA heat waves, you'll see this scary index. Well, the one they used to have up there, they removed it several months ago that showed the actual data going back to 1900 that showed that heat waves peaked uh, 80, 90 years ago. They've removed that and replaced it with this, this data that if you look into the deep, dive deep into it, you'll find it's not actually United States heat wave data. It's from the largest metropolitan areas in the United States, and they don't disclose that. That's scientific malfeasance. Right. So um, for people who are listening, if you didn't uh, take earth sciences, or, or I guess it would have been, I don't know what class I learned that in, but essentially what I think you're saying is where there is concrete, concrete hole or building materials that are artificial, they absorb heat and hold heat as opposed to you're out in the middle of nowhere and it's just ground, right? Absolutely. And then you've got, think of all the vehicles driving around, emitting heat and exhaust. Uh, there's just so many things. And also, 
uh, in the rural areas, the vegetation is, is, has a cooling effect on it. And we don't have that in the city. So, you know, we have this artificially warmed uh, city temperature over the last 50, 40, 50, 60 years. Okay. Okay. So tell me about what has been um, the impact of your books. What is the feedback that you've been getting from people? Is there anyone who says, you've changed my mind? I just would, uh, last week, uh, while I was traveling in London, I went to the, uh, moved, went from London to Oxford, and on the train I met a gentleman from Ghana who was being honored for his life's work at the UN for Sustainable Development. He had never, we started talking, he had never heard of what we, I gave him a copy of my book. He was angered. He said, why have I never heard any of this? This is all data that no one's being told. And he was, he actually got angry. Um, and it was, it was just a revelation to him. He says, people need to know this. And he says, why are they hiding this from us? And I get that time and time again, that when people see this data, people are thirsty for this information. Uh, so our, our, one of our mantras is sleep well, there is no climate crisis. And one other unofficial motto we have is, we love CO2 and so should you. Uh, and that's, that's really the, the guts of what we promote. And to be crystal clear, what we're saying, what you're saying in your book, is not that climate change isn't happening or global warming isn't happening. In fact, you're saying it emphatically is happening, uh, but that it simply is not a problem or not a crisis for sure. Oh, absolutely. And one of the things I really like, and I, an entire section of my book was devoted to the, the strong relationship between human history and climate history. Each of the three previous warming periods were warmer than we are today, dating back to the first great civilizations. Each one of those warm periods was associated with a thriving of empires and civilizations. Food was bountiful. Life was good. And it was the intervening cold periods that went by the names of the Greek Dark Ages, the Dark Ages, the Little Ice Age. These cold periods were horrific. Each horrific. Each one of these cold periods was associated with crop failure, famine, pestilence, and mass depopulation. It's just opposite, isn't it, of what we're being told. We're being told, fear the heat, fear the heat. No, no, no. History tells us, welcome the warmth, fear the cold. Uh, so we Look at people like Al Gore and John Kerry. Uh, they might call me a science denier. I will call them history deniers because they're not looking at what actually occurs during the periods of warming throughout human history. Okay, and when you say the first great civilizations, um, wh where do you start? Is it like the Chinese dynasties or is this, uh, is this Egypt or what? This would have been, it was known as the Bronze Age. It was okay. called the Minoan Warm Period. The first great civilizations were the, the Assyrians, the Hittites, the Babylonians, uh, the Harappan Empire that you've probably never heard of, but that was in the Indus River Valley of India. Uh, but these great, and in China, these first great, great civilizations rose up and thrived. And then within a period of maybe 50 or 100 years, each one of them collapsed at the same time. It was called the Late Bronze Age Collapse, and they collapsed as it started cooling. And it was, it was a worldwide phenomenon. And that led to maybe 600 years of, the, of a dark age called the Greek Dark Ages. We really don't know much about because civilization basically disappeared. Okay. I am reading Herodotus' histories uh, right now. 
which you know cover a lot about Egypt and Greece and um, it was what they called Asia back then, which was Turkey uh, and so forth. And so yeah, I kind of uh, I'm tracking with what you're saying for sure. So again, I'm talking with Gregory Wrightstone. We're here at the Dallas Petroleum Club, where he is about to speak uh, here as the lunch speaker. He has a new book called A Very Convenient Warming, How Modest Warming and More CO2 Are Benefiting Humanity. Um, you can find this book on his website, which uh, is convenientwarming.com. Convenientwarming.com. He also is the executive director of the CO2 Coalition, which you can find at co2coalition.org, working across the ocean, in fact, uh, in multiple countries, to make sure that we don't do disastrous policies, uh, chasing after a crisis that is not happening. Once more, Gregory is not a climate change denier. In fact, he's an emphatic affirmer. I will tell you that climate change is happening, warming is happening, but this is not a reason for you to panic. Buy this book, give it to your kids, give it to your grandkids, give it to policymakers, for crying out loud. Uh, and how much is the book, Greg? $20, $19.95. Okay, very good. Again, Gregory Wrightstone, find the book uh, at convenientwarming.com. Thanks so much, Greg. Thank you. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show.